Ready to live at the higher vibrations, where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, Robin Openshaw here, and welcome to the Vibe Show. I hope you're having a great 2019 so far. I had such an amazing 2018 that I'm almost a little scared to go into 2019. I'm not sure it can top my last year, which was really good. I like to talk about that because sometimes we have a bad year. Sometimes we have a lot of bad things happen to us. The year before that, three pets died on me. I lost three cats. And so, you know, the good thing that you learn about life when tough things happen to you is to notice and celebrate and be present in the really, really good times. And so that's one of the things I really did in 2018 is notice all the great things that happened. So today I'm really excited about our interview because Dr. Gabriel Cousins is a big hero of mine. He's written 14 internationally acclaimed books, including Conscious Parenting and Spiritual Nutrition. Pretty interesting topics, right? He's known all over the world as a spiritual teacher and a leading expert in the raw vegan movement, or the way he would put it, is a live plant-based nutrition movement. What's really interesting to me about him is that he's a holistic physician, but he started as a Columbia-trained medical doctor. He's a psychiatrist by background, a family therapist, but he's also really gone deep into cutting-edge research on diabetes. He has a doctorate in homeopathy. In addition to his medical degree, he has diplomas in Ayurveda, clinical acupuncture, and holistic medicine. He's really multicultural. What you don't hear as we start this interview is that he gave a prayer. He's an ordained rabbi. He's a major yogi. He's a four-year Native American sun dancer. He is not like any medical doctor you've probably ever talked to before. So you may know him as the founder of the Tree of Life Foundation in Arizona. He also has a book called There is a Cure for Diabetes. And I really enjoyed in this interview talking to him about his work with both type 1 and type 2 diabetics. It's really going to challenge what you think about diabetes. So Dr. Cousins, I'm so glad you came on the show because your work has impacted my life for decades now. And we want to learn from you because I have a feeling that you know some stuff that we don't. Those of us who are younger really want to learn from you. You can tell us how old you are or not, but we're here to learn what you know by being over the age of 65 that we could benefit from. Okay, well, I'm very happy to be here and to be sharing uh, understandings and wisdom with you. Yeah, I'm so delighted that you agreed to come on the show because when I started searching when I was very ill some 25 years ago, I definitely ran across your work and read some of your body of work, which is impressive. So fast forward 25 years, I've never met you or talked to you, but I wanted to reach out to you because we're digging into the lives of people who are still working who are still contributing, who are still authoring books, still researching, still serving others when they're over 65. So you're welcome to say or not say how old you are, but what do you have to say about what you've learned by being one of our elders that we now want to look to? At at age 75, I look at it not about, uh, I'll use the word aging, but I'm going to use the word wise aging 
uh, creative aging. Uh, and the truth is, if you're really paying attention, you actually can become stronger with age. So when I was captain of an undefeated football team at age 20, I could do 70 push-ups and uh, seven pull-ups, 500 sit-ups, whatever, okay? And at age 75, I have done uh, 601 push-ups and up to 100 pull-ups. And uh, whereas I couldn't even get close to touching my toes, flexibility here, as a football player, now I can put my, the palms in my hands on the floor. So with age, I've gotten stronger, more flexible, more endurance, and actually more strength. So that is what I call wise chronological aging. In other words, it isn't the paradigm that people accept. If we give it an intention, and if we're focusing on getting stronger and, and quicker and flexible, that can happen. It kind of needs more time to do it, that's all. So the advantage of chronological age is you get more time to get stronger and more flexible, if that makes sense. So age then is not an impediment. This is thoughtful chronological aging. I'm using the word chronological because in many ways, as I've just said, my body's younger. So that's a whole different perspective. Now, what we, we joke about is if only I knew what I know now when I was 20, life would be different. The advantage of uh, getting stronger, more flexible, and so forth with age is you have all those advantages and the wisdom that comes with chronological aging. So it's just a different way of thinking about the whole process. I know that you eat a plant-based diet, and I want to get to how your beliefs may have changed, if at all, about the plant-based diet, because we certainly have a lot of uh, dogmas raging uh, right now. I don't know how in touch you are with what's going on, on right now, but now there's a carnivore diet that's sort of taking the fads by storm, but basically people saying there's no evidence we even need plants. We should just eat animals. But I actually want to go to the third thing that you've touched on besides your flexibility. I know yoga is a big part of your practice. But I want to go to the third thing, and that is you were talking about if only I had known at 20 what I know later. This is a question I've been asking people in our series, Learn From Our Elders. If you at 75 could go back and talk to your 35-year-old self, if you just had a few minutes, what would you say? What would you tell him? The importance of focused on the cosmic reality, which is to know God. No, the truth is at I, a cycle of my life, 33 to 40, I uh, became very intensely focused on spiritual life, and I was meditating six hours a day, chanting another four and a half hours, traveling with a spiritual teacher, Swami Muktananda, for seven years uh, with my whole family, which everybody benefited. And so the message I would speak to, to people really younger uh, early 20s even, is keep your eye on the bigger purpose of life, which is to know God. That's really the most important message. The second most important message, I would say, is look and create a life of meaning versus a life of purpose. 
What's the distinction? A meaning is that in every moment, you're bringing in holiness and sacredness in every action, not just in the action of eating, but every action is coming from a place of love and peace. Purpose is a goal-oriented, but without meaning, you really aren't evolving because the point of being on the planet, from my viewpoint, is that we're here to evolve into the oneness. So that's the message I would give to even people in college where I'm very concerned about the lack of meaning people are having in their lives and we're looking at greatly increased rates of suicide in people 24, 25, 26 because the meaning and, and then ultimately purpose. So creating a life of meaning by how you live in every moment becomes literally life-saving when we really look at the statistics, which are very, very concerning uh, for what's going on in this country and in many ways around the world. So that's what I would say is the, the simple advice, focus on creating a life of meaning in every moment. And in that process, um, looking for what we call right livelihood so that even your livelihood is creating meaning and value for you but it's an internal uh, focus primarily that creates a life of meaning. That would be the advice I would give in a, in a simple way. Interesting. What do you think it is about the world now or the kids now? Why are the millennials in such existential crisis? And we have so many of them not knowing what their, pur their purpose is, which you say we really need to have them looking at meaning. What, what do you have to say to the millennials? Most of, most of my followers will be, will relate to this more on the level of, their concern for their millennial children. Right. So I have millennial, oh no, my children are in their late 40s, but I have grandchildren um, who are in their early teens. What I sense happening, okay, and I'm always asking my grandchildren these questions, just to be honest, so I'm getting feedback. They're, some are in New York and some are in California. And the issue is what they're teaching in school doesn't seem to touch on meaningful life. You can have politics, you can have this, you can have that, but the meaningful life is the key. And that's my biggest concern, is that people are, are looking outward where this is kind of secondary reality rather than looking inward where the meaning comes, where, where the spark of God within yourself exists. And... Um, accessing that because when you do access it we're talking about non-causal not dependent on the outer world non-causal love non-causal joy non-causal peace non-causal oneness non-causal compassion in other words you have that because you're having inner experience of that truth that's also the key to successful relationships is you're not depending on the relationship to give you those things and the relationship adds to those things. So what I see today is a crisis, the existential crisis that you're talking about is people aren't being brought up uh, and certainly not getting, particularly in college, meaning, leading a meaningful life that adds value to the whole planet and thinking externals can give that to you. You know, 
when you're not connected to your soul, which is what we're talking about, often people lose um, a sense of uh, divine order and you get involved with things of hurting other people or making a lot of protests and stuff. That's externally focused. So what happens then, we start to develop what I call, uh, what's been called PC, known as political correct, but I call it pollution of consciousness uh, in, in the sense that people are, uh, allow themselves to be controlled by other people defining uh, what's correct. And that definition is usually not anchored in what we call the 10 speakings or the Buddhist Eightfold Path or the Yama Niyamas, the Vedas. In other words, they're not related to God as a source from which we kind of begin to uh, guide our actions. So if we say anything goes, just if you feel good about it, do it. That's a dark side point of view and it doesn't honor the anchor that keeps us focused on the cosmic truth rather than the kind of uh, post-relative truth that we're seeing today. And people are lost and they're in that lack of soul connection. That's where you get all the agitation, greatly increased suicide. I mean, it's concerning because uh, I have three granddaughters that the rate of teenage suicide for girls is threefold higher than it was in the 60s and 70s. That's a concern. Focus on helping, you know, and, and my children are great in terms of meaning and value for, for them, but I'm talking to my grandchildren that way too. So that's to me the key. And, and the breakdown for millennials is they don't have that inner connection with their soul. And I try in my teachings to give people ways to reconnect deeply with our their souls. That's kind of how I'm approaching it as the advice is really live a way of life that deepens your connection with your, your soul. It's uh, so wonderful that you've lived your life in a way that you'll be a part of your grandchildren's lives well into their adulthood because of the choices that you've made. Because I'll tell you, I rolled my eyes at what my parents had to say and I just wanted my autonomy from them. And I certainly find my adult children having similar reactions to me sometimes, especially the younger ones. And, uh, but I, I hung on every word that my grandparents said and I sought them out. And I, sometimes I would ask my grandparents questions and literally write down the answers that they gave me because I saw them as wise and I didn't have the pushback issues with them. So you have a lot of impact on your grandchildren and I'm sure you don't take that for granted. You have great power in their lives. And so that's really exciting that you get to spend time with them and have these uh, really philosophical conversations like you're having with us right now. Let's talk a little bit about your dietary philosophy. I know you've coined the term holistic veganism, and I have a feeling that what you have to tell us about how you see diet and nutrition is going to be pretty philosophical. I have a feeling from you, from reading your works and hearing your words so far, that it's going to have much more to it than don't eat this and do eat that. So tell us about holistic veganism. So I, I have to start with a, my, uh, what I was my humorous one day conversion into that. When uh, in 1973, uh, my wife was uh, pregnant with our second child and we both had this nightmare 
And, and the nightmare is the fetus was a chicken and we were eating it. I became vegan after that. One day conversion. Two people having the same nightmares is interesting in itself. But so that's how it started. And then as it unfolded, when the spiritual awakening happened with Swan Mukhananda, the Kundalini awakening, um, a little voice rang out and said, you should learn to eat and live in a way that supports the unfolding of the uh, Kundalini, uh, that's a, the life uh, spiritual energy within us, also known as Raha Kadesh, and a variety of other words. But the point is you should learn to eat and live that supports it. So from that, I began to looking at, okay, what's the optimal diet? I was already vegan, but what's the optimal diet? So this is 1975. And what I saw was a vegan and live food diet that helps us become a superconductor of the divine. In other words, not eating it for, okay, it's good for your health. It is good for your health, but that's not the point. The point I was looking at is what is the best diet to enhance spiritual life? Okay, so that's the angle. Now, uh, it's unquestionable. When we look at it, we go to the Garden of Eden diet. It was an organic uh, they didn't have the word organic in those days. Everything was organic, but organic, uh, veganic, they didn't have that until 1944 when that term was coined. But basically it was a live food, uh, plant-based diet. And as I worked with thousands of people around the world by my relationship with Swami Muktananda and traveling and meeting people, it got clear that the live food part of it was, uh, and being plant-based, was the most powerful way to support spiritual life. So that's my angle with it. Now, clearly, it doesn't cause cruelty to, to animals. And it doesn't cause death and misery. And from a spiritual point of view, important to understand that when we kill an animal, we create pain, fear, and misery. And then we take that frequency into ourselves which interferes with our spiritual life because pain, fear, misery, and anxiety interferes with spiritual life. So besides avoiding animal cruelty, we are very much minimizing negative uh, vibrations and frequencies that we take in through our food for those reasons. So that's a second reason. A third and very important reason is how important it is for the environment that a plant-based diet is a minimum of at least one twelfth of the energy that's needed compared to a meat-based diet. It preserves the land in a major way. It decreases war global warming gases in a major way. So it definitely supports the ecology, land and the air and, and the water. Literally, a vegan saves one swimming pool full of water each year. So it's a lot, okay, 1.5 million gallons. So that's another aspect. In terms of health, we are looking at major benefits from health. That's, not, again, not the reason I chose it, but it clearly is a great byproduct that uh, people who are in a plant-based diet 
they're going to have 35 to 50 percent less diabetes, type 2 diabetes, which is an important thing. So that's diabetes. They're going to have 33 percent less heart disease. That's this, this is all well documented. You're going to have one quarter the amount of osteoporosis. That's really significant because meat-based diet is going to pull calcium uh, out of the system. And you're going to basically have significantly less cancer and other chronic diseases. So we, we're, now we're looking at supporting spiritual life in a major way, becoming a superconductor of the divine because the subtle channels, which are known as nadis, uh, there's 72,000 nadis in the Vedic system, they, they got their clog with milk and meat, fish and chicken and beef. They get clogged, so it blocks the flow of the Kundalini. So these are all things I've kind of discovered and working with people over time. So we have spiritual life, we have ecological life, we have your personal health life. Those are three major pieces that uh, are important. In terms of your brain function, the research shows that kafo uh, grown animals, which is 95% of the, the animal flesh food that we're getting here, increases the rate of Alzheimer's threefold, saying, hey, you want to protect your brain? Then you need to go plant-based. So those are my kind of reasons and looking at what I call holistic veganism and really holistic enlightenment is that this is the diet that best supports your spiritual life, life on the planet, and really life for all uh, sentient beings. Okay, before I go to a bigger question, what are CAFO-grown animals? That's uh, factory farmed, K-A-F-O. In other words, they're basically grown in pens and it's very limited and their food is very controlled. It's not grass-fed food. That's why part of the reason there's a, a certain virus that they get like um, cow disease of uh, the food that they're eating creates a, an increase in this, this infective virus that actually uh, causes Alzheimer's. You know what I'm saying by that, right? Yes, I totally understand. I saw a piece of research recently that tracked meat eaters who ate clean meats, like the people who ate factory farmed, if we could put that under one label. Yeah, and remember, that's 95%. Right, it's most people in America. I mean, it's expensive. It's very expensive to eat the other versions, grass-fed and organic versions of fish, poultry, beef. And what was interesting is that there was no difference in the cancer rate in the meat eaters who ate the expensive clean meat and the dirtier uh, factory farmed types of animal products. And that's not what I expected to see. And I think that we've been going on the assumption since the last 10 years where it started to become uh, more in demand in the economy, it sort of became popular to get these uh, more humanely raised animals for for human consumption. Uh, and all I'm saying is let's check our assumptions because we may be wrong that our disease risk is going to be lower eating a bunch of animal products that are more humanely grown. And I'm not saying to go back to eating factory farms. That's absolutely not the answer here. But You know, I, I totally agree. I love that piece. I actually didn't know that piece um, of comparison because now there's enough where we can actually have a comparison. 
What we know is that the research has done on middle-aged men. What they found is that there's an optimum amount of protein to eat, 35 to 70 grams, which is way less than what most meat eaters eat, okay, 35 to 70 grams. Some people, according to their constitution, need about 35 grams. I'm like more one of those. Other people need around 70 grams. That's still low for most people. If you stay within those, that parameter, you're going to have increased longevity and, in a sense, and significantly less cancer. So what they found is that men eating more than that in their 40s, 30s to 40s, actually had four times more cancer and double the mortality rate. That's really significant. So I'm just making a, a little point adding to what you're doing is, is, is that it really does make a difference. So high uh, protein diets, particularly high meat protein diets is where we're talking about, really do increase the rate, and I'm gonna say of, of cancer, like fourfold, they, uh, they also, as I say, increase the rate of diabetes. Now, there's a little bit more to it, but I, when I'm talking about protein, I'm talking about animal protein that seems to increase the rate of diabetes 35 to 50%, and the heart disease, at, if you're having more in a slice animal protein, like a deck of cards, is gonna bring you up to about 20% increase in cancer. So these are about 15% increase in cancer, 20% increase in heart disease. So what we are really seeing is it's animal protein that is uh, causing the big problem versus plant-based protein. So there's a few other nuances here, uh, but mostly people eat too much protein and that is very bad for their health. Okay, what's so interesting about your work is that there are plenty of us out there talking about the health benefits and you've listed off some really good statistics about heart disease and diabetes and cancer, mm -hmm. so many health benefits to eating a more plant-based diet all the way to a completely plant-based diet and you take it to a whole other level of being mostly raw. And I, you know, I, I went, um, I've been 60 to 80% raw for almost 25 years now. And I believe that it saved my life. It saved my children, at least one of my children's lives. Um, and maybe I wouldn't be dead if I had not made that shift, but I certainly would not have this life that I have this completely amazing life where I'm able to produce so much and live in the high vibrations. And so what I really am fascinated by in your work is that there are lots of us talking about the health benefits, like the reasons to shift to a more plant-based diet for health reasons. There are also lots of people talking about the ecological consequences or the, the reasons to support that uh, life on the planet is not sustainable eating the amount of animal products that Americans eat. But you are almost standing alone in that your main message is about the spiritual benefits of eating a live uh, raw plant-based diet. And I wonder if you can talk about this for a minute. We put 13,000 people through a 26 day detox. You know, we don't talk a lot about the fact that the whole 26 days they're eating nothing but plants and they kind of, you know, figure it out if they didn't read the whole manual and notice that there's absolutely no animal products in it for 26 days, because we don't want to say, Hey, this is vegetarian. This is vegan because that's, it's polarizing. It's in, you know, a lot of people like not resonate with that, who might actually have a great experience doing our detox and want to be supportive of them at whatever place on the spectrum that they are. But you've mentioned that when people eat animals, because most animals, 95% are raised in and die in 
pain, fear, misery, anxiety, and these are low vibrations. We now absorb that if we eat those animal products. What are some of the other mechanisms by which you've discovered that by eating mostly or all live plant-based foods, you attain a spiritual uh, resonance that most people have never experienced, Dr. Cousins? Why else is that besides that issue? I kind of discovered this in an in a unusual way. Uh, trained as a psychiatrist or I'm going to say transpersonal psychiatrist and so forth, I was put in charge in the kind of ashram setting of people who were having um, uh, dif- difficulties with the awakened Kundalini. And what I observed, particularly back in America, is that these people, I'm going to use the word jokingly, were self-medicating with me. In other words, the Kundalini energy was growing and they were using it to damper the energy. So I looked at that and say, okay, there's a message in that because they have discovered that if they eat meat, it was going to slow down the Kundalini, uh, aka spiritual energizing force. So I reversed it the other way and began observing people saying, okay, now as you go to this diet, let's see what happens to your spiritual interests and so forth. And I did one study, 95% of the people increased their spiritual interest just by going vegan without any extra discussion. It just began to happen naturally. So I began to observe that the flow of energy, the spiritualizing energy, was enhanced by using a plant-based only diet. That was like a big breakthrough in understanding it. So that's a piece of it. And then how is the flow? Well, in the spiritual anatomy, we have nadis, which are where the subtle energy moves. And there's three main nadis. I mentioned 72, three main nadis. And these literally do get blocked with dairy and meat, fish, chicken because of their heaviness and because I believe of the and fear and pain. So those are two of the mechanisms. What I also note in terms of flexibility is that uh, people who are on a plant-based diet are indeed more flexible and indeed more healthy. Well, you need a healthy mind and a healthy body to have the power and strength to focus on spiritual life. Meditation takes a little bit of energy, you know, uh, chanting, doing uh, service, what they call karma yoga, be doing, you know, charitable service. I travel all over the world. I've spoken in 42 different countries. Well, that really takes a little bit of energy. It's not something you just do. Flying an airplane is a little bit of work. So, uh, and going to these places. So, you to be able to contribute to the world in an optimal way, to uh, to have the energy to meditate and do these things is all uh, enhanced by this diet. And that's why I mentioned that that there was research even with mice, okay? Because we can say, oh, it's your mental state. And they found when they fed mice a uh, raw food diet, they had two to three times more energy. None of this is an accident. It actually increases your energy, increases the flexibility, increases the strength increases endurance. So we start to see, okay, but you need that for spiritual life. You don't want to wait till you're, you know, older and not having the energy to do it because then you can't pursue a spiritual life 
because your body is not keeping up and your mind isn't working as well either. So it, it, it kind of all goes hand in hand in, in the bigger picture. There's a, there's a holistic synergy here that makes a huge difference and diet is one of the six factors. So they're all wound together, if that makes sense. Very interesting. You know, I talk about you a lot because of, I think the documentary is called Simply Raw, but I met a gentleman who was one of the 30, I believe it was, or you'll have to remind us of the details. Well, there are six main people in it, but I've done work with lots of people with the diabetes program and so forth, but there were six key, six people in it. I did a video with an African-American gentleman who had completed his naturopathic doctor. That's Kurt. Yep, that's who. And I tell you, I never got such ferocious feedback as when I did a video with him probably 10 years ago, and he told his story, and people were so angry with me, and they said, you're saying that you can cure diabetes. You cannot cure diabetes. You're going to kill people by telling them to get off of insulin. And I said, I didn't tell them anything. I just interviewed the man who is now off of insulin completely as a result of Dr. Cousins' program. So tell us about what people think about diabetes and what you discovered in taking all these diabetics out into the desert. And Well, it's a, it's a long and short story. So I have a book called There Is a Cure for Diabetes. And I just want to footnote it by saying that uh, many people or a few doctors now have come out with, you know, kind of a, there is a cure type of book. So Kurt really was a type one diabetic. And most people feel there is no cure for type one diabetes. But in my program, not just with Kurt, because that was the first thing, that was my wake up call doing that program. But with 120 people, I kind of did another study that I referred to. And with that group of people, 61% of the type 2 diabetics who were not on insulin were healed in three weeks. Now, we have to define what that means. That means you have a fasting blood sugar of less than 100 and all your other parameters, your fasting insulin, fasting leptin, I don't want to get too technical here, are all normal. So in three weeks, 61%. Of those who were insulin dependent, 24% were healed. Okay, I'm gonna back up a little bit. Now, of the six of the people who had diabetes but weren't on insulin, 100% were off all their medications. Of those who were on insulin, 86% after three weeks were off all medications with 24% cured. Now we go to type one diabetes, which even I thought was incurable. Okay, just be clear about that. And what we see is 21% were cured, meaning off insulin, off all medications, and with a fasting blood sugar of less than 100. We can't be any clearer than that for at least three months. Kurt was one of those 21%, and 31% came off insulin, and again, had their uh, blood sugars in, in the low 100s. So we have documented, it's not really a debate. Now, there is a myth that you can't heal diabetes, and diabetes is a slow descent into an early death where you lose 10 to 19 years off your life. Okay, that was what I'm going to say was what people thought, and certainly what I was taught at Columbia. Okay, now I have lectured around the world at different medical schools and so forth, and I had almost no opposition, literally. 
And I'm talking about not just in the U.S., but I'm talking about in Argentina, in Brazil, um, you know, in European places. So I haven't found much because the data is very powerful, okay? And the way I explain it is very simple. And all you have to look at is, you know, meat eaters have 35 to 50% more diabetes. So clearly, if you're going to go vegan or live food, you're going to dramatically decrease that. Now, that's kind of where we're coming from. So I actually don't get, I get very little resistance. Occasionally, one time in Africa, one doctor was upset about, but again, everybody else gets it, okay? Because it's a breakthrough. Now, the truth is, I'm not the first one to discover this. Dr. Gerson cured Albert Schweitzer of his type 2 diabetes with a live food diet in 1920. So it isn't like I invented this. It's been happening. I just made it public. And the result of that is other doctors are moving in that direction in curing diabetes without medication. So again, it's not a new finding, but now it's public. So we're shifting public ignorance, and I'm going to say medical ignorance, into a certain amount of uh, uh, enlightenment on this basic level. So there is a cure for diabetes. More and more people are following it, not just the people I'm seeing. And I'm literally working with people all over the world uh, on this, you know, helping them heal. So that's kind of the answer to that. So uh, Kurt, because he's type one, is that that was more dramatic. And if I recall correctly, after two weeks, Kurt was off his insulin and his blood sugars were in the low 80s. Okay, optimum is 70 to 85 and less than 100 is non-diabetic. So he did well. Now, he wrote me a few years later that his blood sugars are going up. What are you doing? Well, I'm eating fish. He said, stop eating fish, see what happens. And immediately his blood sugars went back to into the low 80s. So it's just we're moving ahead. The public and a lot of the medical world uh, outside of what we call holistic physicians moves a little slower in getting it. That's all we're talking about. I have no problem presenting this to holistic physicians. They totally get it. So does that answer that question? Yeah, it does. And this has been a very long time since I read this from you. I never saw the documentary, but I read what you had to say about it in other sources. And so I'm just wondering if you have this statistic at the ready in your mind. But I remember uh, that you said that one thing that came out of your research with diabetics and what you did, taking them out into the Arizona desert and putting them on all raw live food, which you have, you know, the expertise and medical background to do, which is very brave of you. It was very uh, envelope pushing of you. But I remember you saying basically, hey, this is wrong. What most endocrinologists will say or virtually all endocrinologists will say is that, hey, pancreas is non-functional here. Therefore, we have to medicate for life. And you said even type 1 diabetics, the vast majority of them still have functioning in the islets of Langerhans. Am I wrong? Hey, good memory. So what it is, is they've done research in, uh, let's say, post-mortem research. Uh, and they found that type 1 diabetics still have 88% of beta cells. Some are lesser functioning. So the truth is, 
at least 88% of type 1 diabetics are indeed producing insulin. That's really important. They're usually not producing enough insulin to manage their blood sugar without some change. So what has happened like with Kurt um, is that uh, we begin to activate his beta cells of the pancreas and he's secreting more insulin. So with herbs that have been around for literally thousands of years, particularly from India, where they have lots of sugar and lots of diabetes, we're able literally to stimulate the beta cells of the pancreas to start producing more insulin. That is really exciting. Now, I just also working with kids although I'm not doing that now because it's a lot of work for me in terms of follow-up, but I have a boy came in and, and people thought he was juvenile diabetic and whatever. He wasn't producing enough insulin, but after a year on the program, his insulin production improved. So uh, uh, two or above, like two to 10 is a really good range. So he went from about 1.5 to six. So we're able with herbs and, and diet He's sustained. I always want, well, let's sustain that. It's got to be at least three months. So that, so um, that's my, my answer is that it's been more accepted in the world today because the statistics are pretty good. But 88% of type 1s, you know, this is hardcore research, have beta cells and are producing insulin, but not enough. And that's why we can be successful because with our diet, which minimizes the amount of sugar in your diet, we're able to lower the sugar need to meet the amount of insulin that they're putting out. And that's what has worked with Kurt. Now he's going to eat, he's going to take fish, which he's not doing anymore. Then his blood sugars are going to go up because meat protein converts to blood sugar. So that kind of gives you a, a paradigm. So they're producing it but not enough on a, a regular American diet. Well, we give them this diet and they're producing enough because we're taking in less sugar. Does that make sense? It does. And I think that the vast majority of people, the vast majority of doctors, even the vast majority of diabetics are completely shocked by the idea. Um, and there's plenty of evidence for it. They're just not getting it from your average endocrinologist that eating meat actually is uh, problematic. Eating lots of meat is problematic for diabetics. They think they just have to, you know, avoid or keep, you know, keep close tabs on their sugars. And that's just, that just literally does not tell the whole story. Really, way doesn't tell the whole story because meat protein does convert to sugar. It breaks down to that. And what, why I use the word holistic physicians, holistic endocrinologists, they don't have any problem with it. Okay. And in 10 more years and it will be common knowledge you know it's just what it takes to change you know kind of mass consciousness that's really what we're talking about if that makes sense yeah it makes sense and i do feel like the, there's a shift coming and there's going to be the world's going to be listening listening more to the holistic endocrinologists the holistic gps the holistic medical doctors in general and you've really led the charge and i want to go back because this isn't really a diabetes show, but that was an interesting side note. Well, it's pretty important because people over 65, 27% of people over 65 have type 2 diabetes because there's some enzymatic 
shifts with age, it happens to people. That's a big percentage. That's it's more than a quarter of the population. Yeah, I'm, I mean, it's absolutely worth talking about. I saw people projecting just looking at the arc of diabetes uh, diagnoses around the turn of the century. I saw some suggestions that based on the evidence that by the year 2020, all of us would be diabetic if it continued the way it is. I mean, considering the fact that probably ha- something like half of diabetics are not yet diagnosed, but they are literally actively living with diabetes. That's a really important point. We're doing diabetes prevention programs all over the world. Literally, we're in 12 different countries and 18 different programs. And we are having, you know, the local people we're trained testing people with their fasting blood sugars. And, and so we're, we're documenting, you know, what's going on. And it's, it is more than you would want to think about. I'll put it that way. So, uh, but giving a little bit of early warning and giving people nutritional advice is a major life-saving uh, event for people. As I say, 10 to 19 years adding to your life. Yeah, I'm kind of glad we went sideways on this because we don't talk about diabetes enough. And you present a a picture of what the dietary advice should be that's very radically different from you know what medicine is recommending to people but let's yeah. let's let's come back to where you like to live in your zone diabetes is part of my zone i'm going to tell you partly by accident because it wasn't my intention but we started with you know 30 days raw and suddenly okay okay so let's go back to a reference you made earlier about being a super conductor for the divine because i think this is very much the kind of thing that you like to talk about with, you know, kind of bring all the dietary advice back to this. Our show is called Vibe. It's based on my book, which is basically about the vibrational frequency of everything. Uh, You're a psychiatrist. I'm a former psychotherapist. And this matters to me a lot because I think there's so, just like you talked about how the schools don't teach about how to have a meaningful life. I feel like the schools don't teach how to have positive relationships, how to communicate, how to be loving. There's so many things that we're missing in our education, even all the way through graduate school and, you know, training to be a therapist and help people with their emotional and mental issues. Talk about what you mean, because uh, we've talked a little bit about vibrational frequencies, but that really resonated with me when you talked about being a superconductor for the divine. What do you mean by that? Okay. But I want to honor you because I love what you're doing and I love the name of your show being Vibe because that's right to the point. Relating to that, we have soul, okay? And again, one of our problems today is people don't believe in God, don't believe there's a soul, so they're not turning inward to experience it. Now, there's also a soul energy. In the Eastern paradigm, it's called Kundalini, and it's stored at the base, it's fine in, in, in the subtle body. When it, uh, certain things happen spiritually, like what we call Shaktipat, which is usually a touch by look, it can awaken that Kundalini and do that work energetically, then it begins to move throughout your whole system and everything becomes, uh, in a sense, a uh, more spiritual experience because the spiritual energy has been activated. As I say, we call it Kundalini in the biblical, we'll call it Urah HaKadosh, the Holy Spirit. But the point is that in this work, when you eat this way, it allows the channels, the nadis, to 
allow the spiritual energy literally to flow through more powerfully. And so we are able to con conduct this energy, superconductor, in a way that isn't uh, as accessible to meat eater eaters because the meat clogs energetically, but in frequency-wise, clogs the nadis because you're taking in the frequency of death. Well, spirituality is the frequency of life, okay? It's the frequency of the soul. Well, when you, you know, killed an animal, you're violating it, you're destroying the soul, and you're creating that misery and fear, but you're creating a negative frequency. So all the meat we see, meat, fish, chicken, dairy, all that, is coming, it has a negative frequency that blocks the flow of the positive frequency. Going back to the word vibe, and I'm linking it, okay, based on what you're, you're asked, which is great, is that we, um, becoming a superconductor of the divine from a dietary point of view is tuning in to the higher frequencies which the plants have, so, and then allowing and opening the channels in our own system, the nadis or uh, 32 different pathways in Kabbalistic, so that the spiritual energy can flow better. And that way you become uh, more of a superconductor of the divine energy, which rests within us as us. Does that make sense? Does that um, clarify your question? It does. And I, and I love your answer. And I guess the last question I have for you is what are your future plans when you're 75 and you're still actively contributing to the world? What does one do from 75 on? What are you going to bring forth next? Well, we, we live in, in different cycles and we'll get into that. So I'm really extremely active outgoing to the world for the next 17 years. And uh, so I've kind of readjusted our center where we're, I'm seeing clients, I'm doing things but I'm actually focused on a worldwide outreach, which uh, when we're just running a center, and you know, like a, where people come to stay, it's a lot of work. So I'm doing more uh, traveling, more outreach, more internet. I'm very pleased to be on your show because you're right in the same frequency here, which is really, really good. Vibe is perfect, you know. So my goal is to be as available as possible to spread the spiritual awareness and really uh, secondarily, I'm going to say secondary because you can't eat your way to God. Okay. I want to make that point. Some people think that they can eat their way to God. It doesn't work that way, but you can make it easier to tune into those frequencies. So my role in this next round, till I guess I'm 92 is to share this uh, understanding. And I'm going to say energy with the world as much as possible uh, by as awakening as much of the spiritual energy in people as possible. Uh, and that's really what I'm, my game plan is at this point. I am finishing my spiritual autobiography, which kind of rounds out this cycle of 75. Uh, I'm in my le uh, 11th rewriting, so it's, it's close. And then just getting it out there. I will have another book I never plan to write books, okay, but which will be spiritual fasting. But my focus now is uh, the spiritual autobiography called Disappearing into the Nothing. 
And my wonderful daughter was in New York, kind of gave me a little bit a clue about the title. So my kids are a little bit involved in all this and it's good. Um, I did write a book called Conscious Parenting, but it really goes to conscious parent, grandparenting. And I'm seeing some openings where grandparents need to be more honored and take a little bit more leadership to, to rebalance our society. So I, I see something there. I don't know what it is right now. So that's kind of where we're going. But the, the subtle message I'm also giving, what we call a meta communication, which you probably know that language. It's a communication behind the communication is, hey, what are you doing getting stronger, more flexible, quicker, and more endurance? You're supposed to be going the other way. How come? You see? So that message needs to get out so people can get to not buy in like they bought into top type 2 diabetes to be incurable is no, no, no. We can get stronger, wiser, more flexible, and clearer with age. So that's a meta communication to everything that's going on. There aren't a whole lot of avenues uh, at this moment, but I know that will open up more and more. So those are some, like a few of the of the uh, projects. I have a lot more projects, but and, and mostly is expanding our humanitarian work. So there's a lot actually, uh, and I'm actually being freed up to be more active out in the world. Well, that's so exciting, so inspiring. Thank you for being one of the few who at 75 isn't retiring and doing as little as possible and you're just giving so much. Where can people find you on social media? Um, what books do you suggest they purchase of yours? Tell us a little bit more where we can find you. Yeah, well, they can just go to drcousins.com and that directs them into a variety of places. We have the Tree of Life Foundation, which is a nonprofit. I do a lot of work. I'm a, basically the scene leader around the world. So that's more, um, again, spiritual focus. And we have a gathering with that. I'm starting now to do three-day meditation retreats. First one will be in March where we're giving Shakti about three times a day for three days, which is a, a real intensive. Um, those are all on drcousins.com. And it'll also refer you to Gabriel Cousins, which is my Spanish, Portuguese, English, three language uh, website that's happening. Uh, and then the key books, I think, different levels of understanding it, but spiritual nutrition is a really important one. People interested more in nutrition, a little bit less in spiritual life would be conscious eating. And then uh, there is a cure for diabetes kind of is a more intense way. They all have different recipes and things in them. And hopefully within a year, my book disappearing into the nothing, my spiritual autobiography, which will be addressing a whole lot of these things. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and also with poetry that goes along with it. So those are some key, key books to tune in. So it's drcousins.com. It'll direct you to everything. And Gabriel Cousins for the international site.com. Uh, so that is um, probably the easiest way to go about getting it. I am for the moment still doing whole person healings. I usually do two and a half to three hours with people. So that's a little bit unique because I try to get to the essence of what's going on with them. 
and work on uh, more uh, deeper levels. Because again, for in my world, we want, we're only here to know the divine uh, within ourselves. So I really focus in all my programs is help people more, uh, more deeply connect to their souls. So that's kind of the focus around the world as well. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for the work you're doing. Thank you for inspiring me now for 25 years of my own journey and for being with us today. It's my joy and I'm just in line to what I've been talking about. I'm happy to be on again. 